Our scripture reading this morning, we're continuing, this is the second week of our series, uh, uh, eight-week series of the book of Jeremiah. Our scripture reading this morning is Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Um, if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, if you brought your own Bible, you can. It's a little more than halfway through the Bible. If you open up, you just kind of open it up. Uh, right after the book of Isaiah is the book of Jeremiah. Uh, like many chapters of the prophet's book, there are some unsettling words of God's judgment. But you won't fully understand God's anger if you don't also notice God's anguish and God's wonderful love. So listen for God's words in the book of Jeremiah. Again, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. If you return, O Israel, said the Lord, if you return to me, if you remove your abominations from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear, as the Lord lives, in truth, in justice, and in uprightness, the nation shall be blessed by him, and by him they shall boast. For thus says the Lord to the people of Judah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with no one to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land. Shout aloud and say, Gather together and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for its safety. Do not delay, for I am bringing evil from the north and a great destruction. A lion has gone up from its thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitants. Because of this, put on a sackcloth. Lament and wail. The fierce anger of the Lord has not turned Eustace was miserable. The bracelet cut painfully into his arm. His whole body itched. But worst of all, his hands, his arms, his legs were rubbery, green and cold. Eustace, you see, had dragon skin. His name is Eustace Clarence Strub, and as C.S. Lewis tells us in the opening sentence of the book, he almost deserved that name. We get to know Eustace in the opening pages of C.S. Lewis's book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, book five of the allegorical children's series, the uh, Chronicles of Narnia. And Eustace, as we soon learn, is every bit the obnoxious, spoiled, self-centered brat. As the book opens, Eustace is playing reluctant host to his 
two cousins, Edmund and Lucy, two of those four Pevensey cousins who he can barely tolerate and whose claim to have fallen through the back of a wardrobe into a magical world called Narnia, had adventures, and come back into our world, Eustace finds infantile and pathetic. And so, bored and irritable, the three cousins find themselves in a back room in Eustace's home, absent-mindedly looking at a peculiar painting on the wall of a sailing ship on high seas when suddenly the waves in that painting begin to magically churn, and the room fills with wind, and Edmund, Lucy, and Eustace find themselves sucked into the painting and spilled into the roiling surf beside the Narnian ship Don Treader. As they are plucked from the waves by their old friend Prince Caspian, Edmund and Lucy are delighted to discover that they are on a third visit to Narnia. Eustace, however, is unimpressed. He is unimpressed with pretty much every detail of this parallel world, until the day, that is, having put in on a remote island to reprovision. Eustace wanders away from the cousins and the crew and stumbles upon a dragon's lair. Stumbling upon it, it turns out, at the exact moment that its resident dragon keels over and dies. Finally, fortune was turning his way, and Eustace wallows giddily in. The vast piles of treasure that are there in that dragon's lair are now his. They are his alone. At long last, the power and the influence that he knew that he deserved all along. And so he slips on a large gold bracelet and falls asleep in self-satisfied smugness. And sleeps and sleeps a long sleep until he wakes up feeling a bit odd. Takes him a while to figure it out, but eventually the truth dawns on him. Lewis, the narrator, puts it this way. Sleeping on a dragon's hoard, with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, Eustace had become a dragon himself. For most of us, what we have become isn't quite as obvious as it was for Eustace. As we have wallowed in our treasure, as we have pursued what we thought we wanted, as we have given in to appetites and insecurities, as we have hustled to appear competent and successful and impressive, we too have gradually, imperceptibly changed from what we were. And deep in our gut, every one of us knows this. Which is promising for us this morning, because it's really only to the extent that we acknowledge this fact, that we acknowledge our own dragon skin that we 
will begin to be able to reconcile two seemingly contradictory assertions. Assertions that are both necessary if we are going to understand the logic behind the difficult words that God delivers to Judah through the prophet Jeremiah. These two assertions. God is love, and God is angry. Two assertions. The first, familiar and unobjectionable. The second, not so much. The idea of God's anger makes us uneasy. It makes us uncomfortable. It, it seems so antiquated. Seems like something that previous generations obsessed over, but that we modern Christians have pretty much outgrown. Which is all well and good until you start reading the book of Jeremiah. Because it turns out that this second assertion could serve as the thesis sentence for most of the chapters of this particular book that all of us carry around in the middle of our Bibles. And until we are able to make sense of God's anger, Jeremiah's message is going to remain opaque to us. It's going to be foreign and disagreeable and honestly kind of toxic. It's actually worse than this. In the book of Jeremiah, not only does God feel angry, God takes it a step further. God puts those angry feelings into angry actions. God takes concrete historical steps to punish, or in the biblical phrase, to judge God's own chosen people. And if it could get any worse than that, the tool, the implement that God chooses to mete out these punishments is none other than the brutal foreign empire whose armies are at that moment terrorizing the entire ancient Near East, the Babylonian armies of the power-hungry Emperor Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so last week, Debbie and I saw the new Star Wars movie, and so I can't resist an analogy. It is as if the Force, the Force itself, had chosen to punish the harassed, plucky bland of band of galactic rebels by allowing the victory of the heartless and brutal Sith Lords. Do you get it? In other words, if you step back and think about the punishments that God is announcing through all of these chapters in the book of Jeremiah, I could understand if you feel that in his anger, God just goes too far. Because Jeremiah's fellow Judeans are going to come to the exact same conclusion. Jeremiah himself, in fact, will frequently do the same. So if you find yourself struggling to make sense of God's behavior in the book of Jeremiah, trying to understand why God does what God does, what you're really doing is trying to reconcile these two assertions on the screen right now. Could the God of love that I know really be that angry? Could God in anger do that? 
I struggle with the same questions. So, I am not going to promise that through this series I'm going to entirely alleviate all the discomfort and all of the reservations that you might feel. No, these are difficult texts. But I do want to suggest one analogy from human experience that might begin to shed some light on how to reconcile these two. And it's an analogy of which we all have first-hand experience. I'm talking about parenting. We all had parents. Many of us are parents, which means you already know that it's an imperfect analogy for God. We all know firsthand that human parenting is fraught with human fallenness. None of us had perfect parents. None of us are perfect parents. And in fact, it's often navigating this interplay between love and anger that human parenting goes awry, at times even becomes destructive. But I bet that every parent in here knows that sometimes real love triggers real anger. Your kid chases that ball into traffic, cheats on a test, bullies a classmate. Anger is an appropriate, even a healthy response because it is anger that is driven by healthy, authentic love, by your desire that that child might flourish, that that child might thrive, might become what you know he or she can become. It is anger driven by your aching desire that that child learns to steer clear of anything, any choice, any pattern that might hurt them or even destroy them. That same desire explains everything that God does in the book of Jeremiah. It is a yearning for the flourishing of his human creatures that is so strong, it often seems like it's about to break God's heart. There's a deep pathos in the pleas that God delivers through Jeremiah. And you can see it in the first verse of chapter 4, this passage Eric just read, this yearning ache that is expressed by the repeated plea, if you return, O Israel, if you return to me. That word return, it's the Hebrew word shuv, is key to what it is that is driving God. God longs that his covenant people might return to relationship with him. Jeremiah is going to use that word return 23 times in his various chapters. And what would it look like for God's people to return to him? Well, biblically, being in right relationship with God always has two elements, and they're reflected here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. First is the vertical relationship with God, and second is the horizontal relationship that we have with God's other creatures. Throughout the prophets, faith and justice always go hand in hand. God longs for an intimate relationship with every Judean, 
longs that his people might know and trust him alone, might worship him alone. Yet, inexplicably, inexplicably, most Judeans seem to have been hedging their spiritual bets, hedging them with a bit of Canaanite fertility religion on the side, worshiping Israel's God on the Sabbath, but slipping out to the shrine of the Canaanite god Baal now and then during the week, making a quick sacrifice to ensure that the crops come in. Those shrines on Judah's hills are to God an abomination. But faith isn't only about where or who you worship. At the same time, God invokes the law court. God invokes the language of legal contracts. Every public transaction um, at that time was guaranteed with the oath as the Lord lives. And so to take an oath with anything other than truth, justice, and uprightness means the integrity on which a just economy depends had become eroded. The powerful and the corrupt were swindling the powerless and the poor. Return, O Israel, God pleads. Return to me. Because somehow, O Israel, O Judah, you have lost sight of the beautiful purpose for which I, your creator, chose you from the very beginning. You've lost sight of your crucial role in the cosmic mission that I'm on. It is through you that I intend to heal and restore and bless all creation. It is through you that I intend to call all nations back to me. How can you throw that away for a cheap tin fail statue and some fraudulent contracts? The soil of your lives, God tells the Judeans, has grown fallow. It's grown idle. It's grown worthless. It has produced nothing of the bounty that I intended. It's grown dry and lifeless, cracked and barren, and so the time has come, God says through Jeremiah, to break up your fallow ground. It's an image that at first seems kind of pleasant, kind of gentle, until you consider what a sharp plow does to fallow ground. This is, must be said, an image of rather violent disruption, which God confirms in the very next line. I would prefer it, God says, if you would do this on your own, out of sheer love for me, the way it was supposed to be, the way we planned it. But if you won't, God continues, if you continue to make such disastrous mistakes, there's too much at stake for both of us to let you squander your chosen destiny. In the anger that is welling up inside of me, God says, driven by deep, limitless love that I have for you, there is an or else that I must unleash, and my wrath will go forth like fire of God unleashed. It is an idea with which we are not at all comfortable, around which we have trouble wrapping our minds. 
But I bet Eustace would have understood it. Because as I said, Eustace was miserable. The bracelet cut painfully into his arm, his whole body itched. But worst of all, his hands, his arms, his leg, every part of him had become rubbery, green, and cold. It was at that moment, at his lowest point, sitting outside his den full of baubles in which he'd lost all interest, that Eustace looked up into the eyes of a creature even more fierce and powerful than he, a lion. Now, if you've read any of the Narnia Chronicles, you will recognize the lion Aslan as Lewis's allegorical version of Christ. Which means, at that moment, the choice facing Eustace is the same one that faces every one of us. Could he trust this unsettling, this dangerous, but somehow magnetic presence? Was Aslan his worst enemy or his best hope for healing? Either way, was he prepared to die? Which is exactly what Aslan asks him. There, beside the lair, Aslan asks Eustace if he really wants to lose his dragon skin. When Eustace croaks out that he does, this lion begins to do something startling. He raises his powerful claw and begins to tear the flesh with his own claws. Eustace narrates, The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Tearing off dragon skin. That's what God is up to through his reluctant prophet Jeremiah. That's what all of those chapters full of agonizing, dreadful scenes of judgment are really all about tearing the dragon skin off of God's beloved children, tearing off the distractions and the deflections and the assumptions and the entitlements, tearing off all the things that Judah thought it wanted so that they might instead become what they were destined to be. And so, in chapter after chapter, you, Jeremiah uses his considerable poetic powers to conjure scenes of destruction, animated vignettes of the horrors and chaos of Iron Age warfare. Blow the trumpet, he says, for instance, in verse 5. Blow the trumpet, call the people to cower behind fortified walls. Because, just like was the case for Eustace, a terrifying lion approaches. It approaches to tear off the dragon skin at God's command. But in Judah's case, it was not Aslan. It was the dreaded Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar at the head of one of the largest armies that human history had ever seen. Evil from the north, as Jeremiah puts it, destroying nations on its way. 
and the excruciating message that Jeremiah must deliver to his fellow Judeans is that not only will God not save us from this approaching monster, God has in fact sent him as an act of wrath and judgment. As dreadful as all of this is, Jeremiah tells them, Nebuchadnezzar is God's chosen implement. And so the only way through this judgment is to submit to this judgment. Don't try and outsmart God's plan. Don't look for help from Egypt or from any other nation. Instead, open the city gates and welcome the marching armies in. It will be painful. All we know and love will be taken from us. Our homeland will be a waste. Our cities without inhabitants. So yes, lament and wail, Jeremiah tells his people. That is what this moment calls for. The Babylonian invasion will be the most catastrophic experience that God's Old Testament people will ever endure. It will mean, in a real way, the death of the nation called Israel, the end of four centuries of David's throne, of David's city, Jerusalem. And some of Scripture's most heart-rending lament describes this calamity. For instance, the book of Lamentations. It's tucked right behind Jeremiah in your Bible. It is a five-chapter poetic dirge, possibly written by Jeremiah's assistant, Baruch, developing at length the desolate recognition that Jeremiah utters here. The fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. Given that awareness, given most Judeans' eventual concurrence, that just as Jeremiah had said all along, this was all God's act of judgment on them, the astonishing thing to me is that faith in God survives in the exile at all. That people would continue to worship a God they believed had done all of this. And the only explanation that I can suggest is that in some audacious act of sheer faith, they were able to imagine these two seemingly contradictory assertions reconciled. They were able to discern in God's fierce anger the evidence of God's tender love. They were able to see that in order to live, all that is malignant must first die. That the fullness of God's love might, might even be expressed in suffering death. Hmm. That when driven by love, God's wrath is never the last word, but simply the word that comes before resurrection. Last week, I laid down a challenge for each of you during this Jeremiah series to be open to some sort of epiphany, some word that the Lord has for you. But I should probably warn you, this being the book of Jeremiah, it is entirely possible that the word that you hear from God will not be a word of gentle approval 
It won't be a word of cheerful banality. It will be a word of disruption, a word of interruption, maybe even a word of judgment. If so, don't despair, because that too is evidence of God's deep love for you. It is evidence of love so unstoppable that it seethes, that it rages at anything, anything that might stop you from becoming what God created you to be, that might keep you from your destiny, that might keep you from his own embrace. Love that yearns, that even that malignant, unhealthy thing might die so that God's wholeness and blessing might fully take its place. It is an uncomfortable process, for sure. But one that Eustace eventually came to appreciate. Well, Eustace later explained to Edmund, Aslan peeled that beastly skin right off, and there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. As soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain was gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. May God never treat us so gently that he fails to transform us into the boy, into the girl, that he has dreamed we might become all along. Will you pray with me?